Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and uh, I'm excited. Today we're doing something a little different. It's a first time for us. We are broadcasting from Holy Redeemer Hospital. I am joined by my new co-host, Dr. Beth Dupree, and I'm also joined by our guest today. Her name is Eileen I'm sorry, Irene Glickman, who is the founder of My ID Square. It's a unique, colorful, interchangeable barcode on jewelry that actually displays the wearer's emergency medical profile and contacts when scanned. Um, I first want to say another thank you to Holy Redeemer Hospital for bringing us the show today uh, and allowing us this beautiful space at Holy Redeemer Hospital to um, to bring you the show. And uh, I want to start with Dr. Dupree for a few minutes and talk about the latest and greatest going on with you and, and some of the activities here at the hospital. Always good stuff going on with me, and thank you again. And uh, just a reminder, now that, we're, now that the show is live, we can actually take callers we at, can, at yes. 610-664-4100. Again, 610-664-4100. Um, no, a lot's going on. I spent a couple of days last week doing a leadership seminar. I'm in the process of a whole year of leadership um, through the health system. Mm-hmm. And it's always interesting because I find out a lot about myself when I go to those, uh, when I go to those meetings. And meeting so many amazing female leaders through doing this process now, it just you know reminds me how important it is to see how we ourselves are perceived as leaders, you know? Right. And uh, so last week was really interesting because we were talking about servant leadership, which is a very different style of leadership than a lot of people are used to. And I think a lot of women are actually very good as servant leaders because we tend to... Um, not ask others to do things that we really wouldn't do ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a very interesting process. And um, the the next big thing that we have kind of on our plates is our uh, breast cancer survivorship experience for our young breast cancer surgeons. So I think I told you a little bit about this. This coming weekend we're bringing, I think, 26 young breast surgeons from around the country um, into the Baltimore area and we are going to spend three days helping to educate them about the integrative medicine and the survivorship portion of how we do what we do as breast surgeons. So it's really exciting because it's one of the most important things I think that we actually bring to the forefront. Um, And now that I'm in charge of integrative medicine at Holy Redeemer, it's been really nice because I'm taking all of those aspects of survivorship and helping to educate young surgeons so that when they get out into private practice, they're going to have that skill set. I'm curious that the the young generation of surgeons, they must be excited about learning um, the integrative aspect. What's really it's not something they receive in school. Right. Integrative medicine is really, it's really about the basics of medicine, how to promote wellness, how to, you know, help with, Very as we're changing, as we're changing how we provide health care in, in the United States, um, wellness and 
health management and health maintenance is really going to be more of a push. It's not going to be something that's just going to happen after a bad diagnosis. No, you're not going to wait till someone gets cancer to say, listen, you really, you know, need to watch what you eat and, and, you know, maintain a healthy BMI, a healthy body weight, and you really need to exercise. You need to consider what you're eating and, and the, the, you know, the amount of alcohol that you drink, the things that you consume, because we're starting to shift the focus back to prevention as opposed to waiting till someone actually gets a, a disease. Right. Um, it, that's a nice lead-in to, to Irene because what I, Irene has developed is something that um, absolutely uh, is something that is needed after somebody is diagnosed with an issue. It's not necessarily a preventative measure. So I, I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're, we're very happy to have you here today and learn all about this. Um, I guess I'll call it a device. It's, a, it's wearable jewelry, and it's for medical purposes. Um, but I first want to give our listeners a sense of you and where you have come from and, and what has shaped the work that you do today. So uh, let's start a little bit with your growing up years in Baltimore. So my, my mom was a stay-at-home mom who was active in charity work, and my father was an ophthalmologist who was very passionate about his profession and was passionate about taking good care of his patients, which was inspirational for me. He also was a bit of an inventor himself. He created a few new devices that would make surgery Just keep an eye on the phone just in case we get a call. I thought that was pretty cool. And he always told me that I could do anything that I wanted to do. So in the back of my mind, I always thought I would go into medicine. Well, you kind of did. I did. <laughs> you kind of did eventually. <laughs> which is true, in a yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, your That's path is, is what we, we want to talk about and, and really how you came uh, to this place. Um, I want to mention that you did. You went to Vassar College, and Vassar College was predominantly all women. So I'm curious to know if that environment of being around mostly women played into your confidence to pursue an industry that was predominantly male. I think it absolutely did. I don't think I felt there were any barriers to learning any field at all at Vassar. When I studied math, which I enjoyed, it was mostly women. My teachers, we had many women teachers in technology and in math, and I never gave it any thought whatsoever that this was really a, a men's family male field. Um, one of the things I read about you was that your your desire to create this um, this ID Square came from your um, interest in software. You know, you majored in computer software, computer science, and you wanted to be able to use it to help people, which is kind of an interesting concept because when we think about technology, we don't often think about people and relationships. But in your mind, at a young age, you were already thinking about how can I take technology and do something to help people. How did that, how did that inspire your work? Well, I think... I, my interest in helping people has evolved over the years. For some years, I did consulting work, and one of the jobs I worked in, it was at a shipping company, and what we had to do was create software that would help the shipping company work more efficiently. And in doing so, um, I completed the software, and as a result, a few employees lost their jobs because what they, their job was was to take telexes from a telex machine from the various ships, copy the telexes, and distribute them to the people who were managing those ships. 
My job was to develop software and inter-office mail system before there were many inter-office email systems, or email in general, and to read those emails, have the computer read them, and then distribute the, the email or the telex to the appropriate person within the office by scanning it and understanding who that belonged to. And while, when that was done, several people lost their jobs. Yes. And at that point, I realized that I didn't, when I create software, I want to make sure that it has, it's going to benefit people and not hurt people. Yeah, that, that's a tough topic because technology in general is, is taking away jobs. It's, it's taking over um, positions where, you know, previously we needed people to, to, to run things. So while it's efficient, it's also kind of a detriment. It's true. Yeah. Um, one of the things I wanted to know was what you learned your years in consulting. Um, you spent some years consulting in the pharmaceutical and publishing and telecommunications industry. What did those years teach you? taught me that I can go into a field that I'm not familiar with and completely l learn enough about that field to solve a problem. And I love learning about new technologies in fields I have not worked in before mm -hmm. and learned how to solve a problem quickly by a deadline. And that was pretty exciting for me. Yeah. You know, you've had a lot of firsts in your career, um, which I, I find very significant. And, and one of the things I wanted to talk about was the, the all-woman's uh, klezmer band. Am I pronouncing that right? Klezmer? You um, that you started. Mm -hmm. and, and again, it was a first of its kind in the U.S. Um, descri I don't want to describe what klezmer music is. I'm going to let you do that, and then we can tell the listeners how you formed this band. Klezmer music was played for hundreds of years in Eastern Europe by male musicians. Women were not allowed to play. And they would play this music at, at weddings and various celebrations. People can think of Klezmer when they think of Hava Nagila. Um, and I've always loved this music. And there was a resurgence in the late 80s and early 90s. And I was also having um, a resurgence of my own interest in music, and I was taking piano and learning how to improvise and play jazz. And I thought it would be really cool to add a little jazz to Klezmer, because Klezmer is mostly improvised. And I wanted to create a Klezmer band with a twist. So I found some amazing women musicians, and we became the first all-women Klezmer band in the country. And we fairly quickly became popular. And, and it was very exciting. Yeah. I, what, first of all, what year was that? So this was 1995. Okay. And how did you go about finding the women? Mm. A lot of word of mouth. The, the drummer was actually an older woman whose father was a famous classroom musician in Philadelphia. And she was a graduate of Curtis, but was never allowed to play drums in a classroom band because she was a woman. Her daughter was an incredible trumpet player who also was not allowed to play klezmer because she was a woman. And they were very excited of the idea of forming a band of women. Yeah. And, and did it catch on with, ha have there been others to follow? There have been, actually. There yeah. have been quite a few. So we were the first, but there are now quite a few others. Yeah. And those women continue to play. They're, they're quite known in, in the world of klezmer music. Yeah. I had never heard about it. Have you, are we familiar with klezmer music? I've never heard of klezmer music, but <laughs> it's, it's fascinating because it's a passion that you have that you were able to bring back and, uh, and create like this, this whole new process. And 
and I'm sure you've given a, a lot of voices to the other women in the group as well because it's probably something that yearns inside of you. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. I mean, I, I, I still hear the music in my voice, in my, in my head on a regular basis. I just... One day I will go back and play that again. Yeah. I'd love I to hear it what, because of the twist of adding the jazz to yep. something that was traditionally, you yep. know, something else. A little else. ragtime. Yeah. A little blues. We right. added it all. We should have started the show with that. <laughs> I know. I get, get, get the music. Come on, right. I brought a tape, an old cassette tape. Oh, good. Oh, good. Um, you know, I, when I think about you, Irene, I think of you as a trailblazer because of the, you know, several of the things you did were firsts. What, how would you define the word trailblazer? I guess somebody who tries something new that hasn't been tried before. I, I don't think of myself as a trailblazer. I have a lot of interests, and unlike, I guess unlike a lot of people, when I pursue them, I pursue them with a lot of gusto. Uh -huh. I mean, I don't like, I like to see projects completed, and I don't like to look back, so I don't want to have any regrets. And, you know, before the show started, we talked a little bit about um, women seeing a need for something and kind of taking charge. And I, and I, I asked you if, you if you think that that's a female trait. Um, I tend to think it is, that women will see a problem and a need and immediately want to fix it. What are your thoughts on that? I don't know if it's so much a female trait. I think... We all want to find a solution if there's a problem. I think computer people in particular, um, look, we don't look for problems, but our job is to fix problems. Mm -hmm. So well, if there's ever a problem that is not working, if my husband has an idea that is not working for him, I'm always throwing out ideas of how to make it work. I think that's what computer scientists do. Analyzing systems. You know, it's when you fixing problems. Yeah, you. But that's. I mean, as a surgeon, I'm a problem solver. Right. Um, as it, my my sons are both engineers and they're problem solvers. And it's like you give them, you know, there's you you find something that's not exactly perfect or that that has an opportunity for improvement. And you start thinking, okay, how do I make this system better? Because what you've done is you you're in your company, you. Um, it's not that it had to happen, but what you did was you took something and you made it completely out of the box and did something unique and authentic that, that's really going to help patients or help people to get really great care. And so other people may not have seen it as a problem, but the way that your analytic mind was thinking, you said, wait a minute, we can do something about this, but think about it. Your, your dad as a physician, your husband, you, you have that whole medical thing. I'm sure you hear lots of medical stories around the table. A lot of medical stories. A lot of problems that need to be fixed. I hear not only medical stories, but about problems that exist that he gets frustrated. Mm -hmm. Same with my, same with my father. Yeah. But he tried to fix problems too. Yeah. Well, one of the aspects I think about often when I'm thinking about technology and innovation is that people sit around and have conversations with family and friends, but often they'll think, well, somebody's probably already working on that. Somebody else has already done that because change is so, uh, so rapid. And you saw a need for people who uh, were in a situation where they didn't have the information they needed, and it could be life or death. Right. Um, and rather than assume that someone else was already working on that, you decided to create it. Well, I did look out for something that could solve this problem for my, for my husband who needed information from a patient, and the information was not readily available. So. I did look for a solution for him, and I couldn't find something that 
would work. Yeah. You know what? For the listeners, again, let tell the story about you know how your husband came home one night and talk, talked about that patient and what spurred this whole idea. So my husband's a nephrologist, which is a kidney specialist, and he does dialysis. And dialysis units are very often independently owned by large companies. They're not connected to hospitals or medical centers. And he would came home one evening very frustrated and late because he needed information from a patient's cardiologist because the, the patient was failing and the cardiologist had recently changed the patient's medication and the patient couldn't remember what who the cardiologist was. He couldn't remember what medication he was on. And luckily, my husband knew that the patient's cardiologist had been at Penn, where he is working, and he was able to get into the Penn medical records to find out what the cardiologist had done, and he actually contacted the cardiologist. But had that patient been at another hospital, he would not have been able to access that information and would not have known how to care for that patient. So he said it's, a, it's really a problem that medical systems do not communicate. And how is there a way? And I, and I suggested that there must be a way that we can bridge this problem, that we can fix this problem so this is not a problem for him and for the patient. And that's when I came up with this idea for a smarter type of medical ID. And let, let's describe it so that people understand exactly what it is. Sure. So the medical IDs, each one has a unique QR code. QR codes are short for response. It's a type of barcode. We say it's a two-dimensional barcode because unlike the barcodes that you might find in the grocery store, which, are, which have like a single line of mm -hmm. information that's scanned by the scanner at the grocery store, these are square. So they contain more information than you might find in, a, in one of those thinner traditional barcodes you find in a grocery store. And QR barcodes can automatically text somebody, they can have a URL to a website in them, and they can have quite a bit of information. A lot of hospitals are using them in patient IDs, a lot of hospitals are using them on medicine bottles, and they're used, and they're, they're used in a lot of hospital situations when more information than, than you need, than is available in one of those thin barcodes is needed. So I thought this would be a perfect tie-in because medical personnel recognize the QR barcodes. They're very popular in advertising and other situations. You see them on cereal boxes and things like that. So a lot of people are familiar with them. Mm -hmm. And in addition, anyone can scan it with any smartphone. So each one has a unique URL, and yet you can download one of thousands of free QR code readers and access the information. And I thought if I made them colorful and fun-looking and, and that children would want to wear them, children who often do not want to wear medical IDs because it makes them stand out as having a medical issue, I thought if I made the IDs fun and, and clever that they would think this is a cool thing to wear. Right. And yet I wanted to make it powerful, that it had everything that was needed when a patient sees a doctor in, in the office, all their medications, all their pharmacies, anything the patient often forgets that they, um, this has everything. And also in an emergency situation, I wanted to make sure it could alert their parents and family members and provide all the medical information needed to care for them. So, um, well, first of all, the, the, the wearable tags are for men, women, children, boys mm -hmm. and girls. It's for everyone. Right. Um, is there a limit to the amount of information that can be stored? There is no limit. There's no limit. And again, because it's not stored, it's going to the cloud. Correct. Right? Right. And I wanted to ask Beth, when I think as a patient, um, we often talk about the information in hospitals. If, if you've been there at least one time, 
your, all of your information should be stored there, but there still seems to be some tr trouble or issues. Hospitals can uh, uh, communicating, communicating yeah. to each other. What it's yeah, it's it's tough because I mean, what I see the the utility of this this phenomenal concept is a patient, particularly somebody in an emergency situation, where they may not be able to, you know, they may be unconscious or something. Right. Um, you saw how easily, I, I scanned on my smartphone, I scanned one of these and a, a fake patient came up, but I just wanted to make sure that I hadn't called their emergency. There was a button to push and it would actually call the emergency contact on the list. And um, particularly when I was a trauma surgeon, this would have been amazing to have when someone comes in because you can find out right away whether they're on a, a blood center, whether they have uh, other medical issues you need to know right, right away, like a seizure disorder or, or something like that. In addition, in my office, I can't tell you the number of patients that come in and say, well, I think I'm on a water pill and maybe um, I, I take a, a beta something and, and, you know, it's a beta blocker and they won't have the medication dosage. So my medical staff, my, you know, medical assistants spend a lot of time getting the detail of those medications and surgeries in their past history. So to be able to have a patient come in, zing up their barcode and have that information accurate, up to date and in my hand is just, it's priceless. It's right. really, I mean, as a medical professional, you know, it, it would be nice to have a patient walk in the door, particularly someone that's complicated. You know, I'm looking at this for my mom who has Alzheimer's and I'm thinking, you know what, this is a great little thing because even though she's in a situation where theoretically she's not supposed to be able to get out of where she's living, this would be a phenomenal concept to tell all of those medical uh, medical secrets, all the, all the medical information you really need to have to care for somebody in an urgent or emergent situation to have it right there. Yeah, absolutely. And that is going to come about with both adults and children. Absolutely. You hear on the news all the time, um, you know, elderly somehow, um, you know, getting out of the place that they are and that they're safe. Um, but what's one of the challenges that you're facing as, a new, as an entrepreneur and, you know, uh, uh, someone launching a new product in the technology field? I think one of the challenges is growing, is finding the right people to work with. Philadelphia is, is a great city for technology, but a lot of people will go out to Silicon Valley or to Boston and New York instead. So finding the right people to help me has been a little bit of a challenge. But the world is smaller now. We have people working with us all over the country, which has been great. We are now in the process of looking for funders. We have funded this ourselves. We really believe in this product, and we have taken out loans to fund this product because we believe it will save people's lives. And now we're in the process of finding people to actually fund this. So we're looking for, we're speaking to angel investors, um, and we hope to help us really take it to the next level. Because eventually we would like to partner with hospital systems and assisted living facilities and the like. So right now we've been selling it to consumers, direct to consumers, proven concept, save, save lives. Now we want to do it on a, on a much larger scale. And so we're looking to, to partner with other people to take it to the next level. How about um, education? Have you presented to schools? I've not presented to schools. That's an interesting idea. 
Yeah. I like that idea. There you go. That might be a great. I I love yeah. the. I saw the one online that you know for the peanut allergy and the gluten allergy, because um, a lot of for a lot of kids they you know they don't want to wear a medical alert bracelet. But you're making these fun. These look like things that kids go would go. You know, like my son's girlfriends would come in wearing a really awesome hot bright colored bracelet. And there, it's it's information though. It, it's but you you package it so beautifully to make it right. really palatable. And it, it reminds me of uh, the pieces that are out there that you add charms to. Yes. You know, change. You know, continually change it. Which for young people, you know, they're always changing their favorite color. Their, oh yeah. Their favorite this and that. Well, thank you. That's what we really tried to do. And the truth is, you know, I love jewelry too. So who doesn't? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this has actually been a lot of fun for me. I've learned a lot about jewelry making more than I ever thought I would ever need to know. It's been fun working with some really clever designers, too. Um, I wanted to, you know, you're a mom in addition to um, being an entrepreneur, and I wanted to know if you ever were hesitant about going back to work full-time and into such a, um, you know, high commitment position with having three children at home. No, I always thought it was important for my children to know that moms could work, too. And and I think my kids now, who are now 24, 22, and 16, now appreciate that mom, their mom's a little different. She doesn't do things that a lot of traditional moms do, and I think that's been good for them. Yeah, it's a great lesson. And is it three boys you have or two boys and a girl? Two boys and a girl. Right. Can Talk about them for a few minutes and, and what they're pursuing. So my oldest? is 24 and he graduated college two years ago and his interests were very different than my husband and my own. He studied political science with a focus in the Middle East and spent some time in Middle East countries learning Arabic on, on grants. And he's now taking, I think, a little bit of a break from his Middle East interest and passion and working in a marketing consulting company in Philadelphia and living on his own in Fishtown and enjoying single life very Good. much. Yeah. We Good. get to see him a lot, which is wonderful. And that's an, an area that is, you know, rejuvenating exactly. and turning around. Really love to see wonderful that. beer gardens there. Really yeah. Quite fun. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Introduced us to those last summer. Uh-huh. My second one, um, I'm quite um, proud of all my children, of course, but he's taken after his mom. He just graduated a little early from, um, from Johns Hopkins and is staying there on taking some graduate courses, but he actually studied computer science and math. He did, okay. He did, and he has spent the last few summers working at Google, and he just got a company job Good. at Google, and where he got the option of um, living out either in Silicon Valley or New York, and mom and dad are thrilled that he chose New York City, mm -hmm. so he's going to be working for Google, starting, he'll be moving to New York in the summer. Terrific. So really excited about that. And my youngest is 16. And she has spoken about going into medicine. I try to encourage her to, to join the robotics team at school, First Robotics, which is a very wonderful program that I'm hoping to support in a bigger way next year, uh, where the kids put together, they assemble these amazing robots and they compete with one another. And the competitions are all over the country. And she told me she didn't want to do it because she was, she's not like her mom and she's not like her brother. She's going to be something different. She's going to be a doctor. But a friend of her asked her to, do, to get involved in robotics. And so because the friend asked her, she did it. And now she wants to go into biomedical engineering. She loves computer science. Oh, she fantastic. wants to build things. Like, so I'm really quite pleased. Yeah. 
That's great. My one partner, who's a phenomenal surgeon, is a biomedical engineer, just so you know. Dr. Kreischer went to Texas A&M, and I don't know that she knew for sure that she was going to go into medicine right away, but all of those skills, they're all problem-solving skills, and medicine is problem-solving, so, you know, it doesn't matter what you major in an undergrad. It matters that you know how to learn how to solve problems. Yeah. Well, you know, on this show, we love young girls going into the STEM field, and you're, um, you know, a wonderful example to your daughter. But what would you say to young girls who have an interest in pursuing it, but they're hung up on the stereotypes? Just do it. It is a lot of fun. Making stuff, making software, Two making minutes. robots, putting things together, creating new and exciting programs that can really change lives is amazing. It's, it's you know, what I that the effect that this product has had on thousands of people and, and programs that I've worked on in the past have also been used by thousands of people and getting the feedback from that is priceless. And, well, and it is creative. You know, it is creative. It it's is creative. When I yes. went to college, I thought I went to a liberal arts college um, and I thought I was going to study. I actually didn't know what I was going to study, but I loved music. I was a musician. I loved art. I dabbled in art a little bit. I loved foreign languages. I loved math because it was fun. And and so in many ways I was creative and, and I think I think thinking outside the box and trying to create something that is useful requires lots of many parts of your brain. This has I enjoyed the the graphic part to this, the right. artistic part to this mm -hmm. that I haven't used in computer science before. It's been really fun. Yeah. One. We are going to take a short break, and uh, when we come back, we're going to talk more with Irene Glickman, founder of My ID Square. And please, if you're listening and you want to call in and ask a question of Irene, you can do so by dialing 610-664-4100. We'll be right back. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Are you looking for something special to wear to an event, on a date, or out with the girls? Nevada is a Philadelphia-based luxury label designed for the effortlessly chic global nomad. Our ready-to-wear and custom pieces, which include bridal wear, by the way, are inspired by artistry and travel. The line is intriguing and exotic. After all, fashion should create a sense of escape. So go ahead, escape with Nevada, and make a timeless impression. Please visit us online at nevadacouture.com. Talk 860, and we are joined by Irene Glickman today. Uh, Irene is the founder of My ID Square, and basically she developed a interchangeable barcode that is on jewelry, and it's wearable, and it displays um, people's emergency medical profile and contacts. So if they're ever in an emergency situation, uh, whoever is with them, whether it's a hospital or um, 
you know, they're at some type of a facility. They'll have everything they need. It's, it's really amazing. And um, we spoke the first half about your background in studying com uh, computer science. And I'd love to hear now uh, a success story, you know, something that has really um, confirmed for you that what you've designed is, is a good thing. Yeah, it's, you know, it's one thing to put a product out there, but when you hear that you've actually saved someone's lives, it makes all the hard work really worthwhile. It's been incredibly wonderful. So there's been a several stories that we've, been, we've heard from patients, customers. One was a child who was seven, was having, who's epileptic, who was having a seizure and having some sort of strange reaction at home. Her mom was away at work. Her sister called um, the ambulance and they took her to the hospital, and at the hospital they scanned her, we call these squids for square IDs, they scanned her squid, and they got the name of her neurologist, and they called the neurologist, and, the, and they read off the name of the medications that she was on, and her neurologist said she's having an allergic reaction to this medication, and this is what she needs to do. Without that information, she, she would have been, she would have really been in trouble. We have other people. One person told us just last week that she has a cardiac issue and she has a, a helper dog. She passed out in the grocery store. And when she came to, they knew her name. They knew what her medical conditions were. They, they had contacted her emergency contacts. They had used her squid to access the information they needed to take care of her. And they were, and they were good Samaritans. They weren't medical professionals. Well, so that's a good point. You don't have to wait till you get to a hospital to have this information. Anyone who is with you can scan it immediately from their phone. Exactly. And have the information. Exactly. And then can contact your doctors themselves with your doctor's contact information. They can even email from, if you scan this with, you can email the profile to the hospital. So they can have it when they arrive. Yeah, the technology is amazing because it's the, when we, we're living in the world of information science, um, in 2009, we got electronic medical records in our practice, and it's become obviously mandatory for to, to stay in the health system, to be able to stay electronic. So to be able to have that level of information to be transferred directly to someone who's about to treat a patient, um, I mean, I love, I love the verification piece of it where, you know, a, a patient doesn't have to be in an emergency situation. You know, just a lot of patients, a lot of older patients are on multiple medications. It's very hard for them to remember what they're on and to be able to go through that list with the patient and verify um, what you see in writing, uh, you know, compared to what the patient saw would be really awesome because it changes so quickly, yeah. you know, and, and I think for the number of physicians that, that a patient can have, you could have a neurologist, a cardiologist, you know, you could have a nephrologist, you could have multiple different system physicians, and that being able to have, you know, immediate access to the most updated information. So that brings me to my question, do the patients go in and update it, or how, do they, how does that information get changed that's on the squid? The patients update the information themselves. They can update it from a phone or from a tablet or from a computer. So, could, so if a patient came to my office and we were going to change a medication, could we log in with them to, sure, to change absolutely. it to make sure that We've they got it? We've actually had um, older patients have their, their, their doctors that update the information for them. That's actually, we've heard from patients that that has happened. In addition, we did a survey a few months ago of our patients, and we got a really nice response. About 75% of them had used, had shown their physicians the medical information and updated the medical information in the doctor's office. 
So it's a, it's a very user-friendly program that the that the anyone who has one um, is able to get in and out of because that's the other uh, issue is that your your medical history is going to change, um, specifically medication. Sometimes Correct. older people don't even ask the name of medication. You know, they go in and they're treated and they're. Um, doctor prescribes something and they take that paper and they go to a pharmacist and they fill it and then someone who loves them says, what do you want? And they say, I don't know. Yeah. That's why you also have the pharmacy, your pharmacy as, um, on, the med on this profile too. So in case there's any question, the doctor can always call the pharmacy. You know, we had a group of physicians, some emergency room physicians and some other physicians and nurses um, tell us what information they needed in this profile. And that, that, so we developed a profile with them in mind. We also had a group of patients who came in and told us what information they wanted to include in the profile. So it's really a combination of medical professionals and patients um, to find what's in this profile. So we think we've done a really good job of ensuring that the information that's needed is there. Yeah. Do you have a team behind you, or have you done all of this yourself and with the help of your husband, who happens to be a physician? I have a nice team. I Good. have developers in Conchahokan who are wonderful, who've developed, we call it the medical app. I developed the software to create the QR codes. That was really fun for me and to make them all unique. Mm -hmm. um, I have all the manufacturers are in the United States. Everything is done locally. And so we have a team of different manufacturers and graphic designers, people who are helping us with the social media, and we have the developers as well. Um, I, I wanted to know if you have, um, a, as a technical person, um, some thoughts about where, what you would like to see in the future um, with technology. If there's any type of programming or software that you feel has not been developed yet and you'd like to see come about. Well, truthfully, I would love there not to be a need to have our squids. It would be great if we had one medical record for everybody in the country, where people were not, where hospitals and, and dialysis units were not siloing this information. If they could share this information, we'd reduce medical errors, yeah. we'd reduce um, procedures and testing. Mm -hmm. That would be ideal. Unfortunately, we're not there yet. Not there yet. That's what I would love to see. And in addition, I think if we shared this information, we'd have a better idea of maybe whether there's pockets of flu or pockets of another medical condition, and we'd have a better idea of how to take care of patients if, if we shared the data. Yeah. Do you, I, I'm assuming there's people working on that. Do you think it's a far-off um, scenario? I think it's still far off. I've seen a couple of demonstrations. I go to the South by Southwest Technology Conference, and I've seen different people who are trying to address this. Mm -hmm. um, they, they're even getting funding from like the Clinton Initiative to try to create systems where they can understand um, where there's pockets of disease. There's, even like some, there's a couple people developing the, a thermometer where the you take your temperature and that information is shared in the cloud mm -hmm. and, and you know the location of where the information was taken. So you can see where people are getting sick. We need more of that, I think. And of course, you, have, you can't address any of this. Anything that's information that's going to the cloud, there needs to be security. HIPAA, yes. right? Absolutely. So patient-managed information actually doesn't require HIPAA, though we do 
our information. It does not require HIPAA? It does not. It's the patients entering, entering the information themselves, and it's their own personal information, but it would be an issue if I, as a physician, had that information Correct. and then went to share it with someone else. I have to have the patient's permission to share that information. Okay. It's the Health Information Portability and Something Act. I can't remember what the other P is for, but it's HIPAA, and it's a, it's a big... It's a big deal because you can't share someone's medical, basic medical information without their permission. You know, there was a time when we did not have HIPAA, and it wasn't that long ago because I remember it, and then all of a sudden one day, you you know, your doctor calls the house and can't speak to your spouse Correct. because unless, of HIPAA. And, well, unless you sign the, sh the form when you come to the office, we have a little checkbox that says the following people are allowed to... Um, receive your medical information. Right. And so it's a very specific thing, and it's a, it's a big deal. We check it every single time a patient comes in. But with this information, the great thing about this MyID Square, it's giving a, the patient the opportunity to get their information correctly, you know, and to be able to have that information to be able to share at their will. Uh, because a lot of times they're asked, again, could you sit down and fill out this this form and you fill out this information, it's the same information. If you actually had it on there that the doctor's office could scan it and then print it out and make it, you know, put it, make it be part of your medical record, you're, you're decreasing the number of times that an information is being pulled up, typed in, because every time you take information and put it into another system, you're, you have opportunities to, you know, transpose numbers or do something and and I mean we're human we're, we're trying to do the very best we can but this is a way I think for patients to really have a handle on their specific information that they want to share and and not be carrying around a, a file with papers right? you, when someone buys one of these is there like a maintenance fee to keep their stuff on on the web none I love you for that. <laughs> no, that's it's, it's Good awesome. Answer. No, that's but you know what? It, it shows that you're 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 driven by the why. The why you're doing this is to change and or to potentially save people's lives. That's exactly right. You know, I was very concerned about having somebody's squid scanned and having their subscription expired, and the medical information would not be available, and they could be hurt. So. It was a difficult decision not to create a subscription. We actually started with a subscription model, but I wanted this to be used for the right reasons. I didn't want it to not be available when needed. You're fabulous for that. I, I applaud you because yes. there are a lot of people that, that take on a business and you're, you're doing it with the right intentions. And there are a lot of people that look at the business model and say, how are we going to perpetually make money with disposables and, and, you know, monthly fees? And this you've really created a, you know, a medical enhancement for individuals. And I, you know. I'm gonna buy one. What the heck? <laughs> I got it. It's really nice. It's, you know, I, yeah. I, you know, I think about my parents as they're aging. You know, their, yes, their records can get transferred from, you know, their retirement community to someplace else. And dad, if you're listening, I promise it's gonna be a dog tag and it's gonna be very attractive. Very masculine. Very masculine. <laughs> but, you know, if my dad is going to the market and he's going to, you know, he goes to the market to get fruits and vegetables to feed his animals. He's 86 years old. But if he fell down or if something happened to him and he's in the middle of the market at York and they don't know that he lives at Country Meadows, then the person that sees him in the emergency room, if he's unconscious or confused, you know, so how quickly can I get one? Seriously. <laughs> I, I, if I right call, after the show. If, if I, I go online. I have a few here for you. If you might like our pale blue 
our pale blue dot. Oh, that's very nice. That's and then, so you buy one of these, and then this becomes this this barcode, which I'm looking at, which is very cool. We'll put it up becomes, on the website. Yeah, we can put it on the website. This barcode then becomes his personal. Correct. And then I go online and fill in the information. Correct. And as long as it's he's simple. wearing this, somebody scans it and Correct. says, you're fabulous and you're 86. And we know exactly what we can and cannot give you. Yeah, and, I love and, it. And there were patients who really wanted to have that immediate information, like his name, his age, his address. So as a result, we have, we have options where you can have something custom engraved. We do the engraving for you. And people often wear them together. Because for some people, that wasn't enough. For most people, the custom engraved options of traditional medical IDs are not enough. So you can have both. So with our, with our dog tags, you can get another dog tag that can be engraved. With our bracelets, you can have charms that we have that you can engrave. So people, most people will get a combination of the two. Provides a greater, I guess, you get a greater feeling of security. How great it is! I mean, you, you took, you know, you took the iPhone, the, the smartphone that most a lot of people carry smartphones, and it, this is a great use of your smartphone because I'm going to get you to download so when we're done the show because okay. yeah. Sue's watching me. She goes, "How do you have that on your phone to download?" <laughs> said, at, at conferences, they'll you can scan, you know, they'll scan your ID badge. We all get a little barcode when we get to the conference mm -hmm. as physicians, so that way they get our information. I can download, you know, a company's information, but this is like the greatest use of these little barcodes that I've seen yet, so I'm well, loving it. And it's only the beginning. Uh, I should mention you, you founded this company in 2013, so it, right? it hasn't been company. that long. It's only going, you're only going to enhance the product more and more all the oh, time, absolutely. which is the fun part of it as well. Yeah, and we, we've recently signed a partnership agreement with CHOP. We're supporting the Diabetes Center at CHOP. So when the patients go to CHOP, they're given a certain code. And if the code is used to purchase a squid, we give money back to the Diabetes Center. We've also recently signed an agreement with the Dysautonomia International Society and similar kind of um, rebate. We want to support research into these medical conditions. Our, our mission is to give back. I'm sorry, say the name of that organization one more time. Dysautonomia International. Which is... Um, this also is a, is, a, is a medical condition. You could explain it better than I could. Um, it's a, it's a complex neurologic um, process that uh, patients have um, specific signs and symptoms, a lot of weakness. Um, I'm not a neurologist. Okay. I have had a couple patients that have had it, but um, it can be incapacitating. Correct. And so being able to give that information to a healthcare professional quickly would be awesome. Yeah. Very often, I know that I have a cousin who has POTS, which is a kind of dysautonomia um, condition, and she will faint. And when she faints, very often an EMT might think she has diabetes, but she doesn't. And so having that information, what medications she's on, is really crucial for her. So very often a, a, a patient will have something that is unusual. Like we also have something called a, a charm for Ehlers-Danlos. We had a lot of requests for this. Yeah. We've never heard of this condition before. Also, people don't often understand it, including physicians, and they're often on many medications. This makes it much easier to care for those patients. Do you see a benefit for a, a woman who's battling cancer? Uh, have one of these. I think that for it depends on you know if you're in the midst of, of therapy because your medications change along the course of time. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's there's definitely a benefit to this because you know medicines are constantly you know what we what we do with our patients is constantly changing and being able to update this and make it very current is phenomenal. I also think you ought to go to the transplant programs 
you know, I mean, we do a lot of, uh, you know, kidney, heart, lung, liver, you know, liver transplants for a transplant patient because their medical history is so, 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 you know, detailed and their medications that they're on. And, you know, that w it would be something that, you know, like a transplant program would be able to, you know, tell the patient this is what you need to put on your, you know, to update it with them because since it is the patient putting in the information in those particular programs, you know, I remember our patients when, we, when I did transplant at Einstein when I was a resident, I mean, just the list of medications that the patients were on was daunting, let alone all the surgeries and the procedures and all those things are really important to have, yeah. you know, when in, in, a, in an emergency. And you know what? Here's the deal. You could wear this your entire life, but it's that one moment. You know, the 99% of times that you wear it for that 1% that it's going to save your life. And you kind of have to look at it like that. And they're very affordable. I, you know, I like you so much for doing this. You're, this is just... <laughs> You know, as a physician, it's a great idea. I'd like to see every patient leave a hospital and go home with one. We're working on that. Uh, uh, yeah, we are. I mean, we, we would love to have, as the as the patients get discharged, to have their the nurses that follow them, mm -hmm. so that they prevent them from returning because that's not good for the hospital. We would like the nurses to put all their information on there. So if they go to the pharmacy, I, I hear often that the patient leaves the hospital, they get a stack of paper and, you know, marching orders on what they need to do to take care of themselves, and then people leave the hospital, they're not feeling 100%. Oh, so if they go to the pharmacy and they find those medications $200, or they're not going to pay $200, they don't need it, and then they end up coming back to the hospital. So if we put all the information in their profile and assess specifies exactly why they need the medication, they would have that information when they went to the pharmacy, and perhaps they would make the right decision as a result. I think so, people may be hesitant. Whenever there's something technologically that you have to sit down and first, you know, the beginning is the toughest part, inputting all of the information. But not only is that easy, then the updating is, is very easy. So once you very have easy. it in there that first time, you're just adding a medication or taking a medication out it's not going to take long at all do you send do you send emails out to people who own these and say have you updated your your information recently no we need to I, I, do, I was just no, I mean, right we have reminders the, the, the survey that we sent out we sent out a couple surveys and the overwhelming response from people was they, they do they do use it they manage their information on a regular basis that's what people told us to respond to the survey um, we don't we don't remind them on a regular basis but it's something that we know we need to do. I, I would only, I mean, I would think someone who's going to purchase one is, is someone who's proactive about their health, Correct. but your Correct. point your point about population health management, that's a really big deal here at Holy Redeemer. We're really looking at how do we, and it's not about keeping people out of the hospital, it's about how do we maintain a patient's health and wellness the very best that we possibly can. And that means that our patients have to have an understanding about why they're on the medications that they're on, so it's that education, and a lot of the nurses um, play a big role. Nurse, nurse managers play a big role in helping our patients to maintain a level of health that doesn't require admission back to the hospital. Right. But I think this would be something that would be incredibly beneficial for the patients because it gives them ownership, too, of their health. And Correct. when you have ownership of your health and wellness, everybody does better. Everybody, everybody succeeds. Mm -hmm. The doctors, the patients, and, you know, we leave the hospitals for those situations when, you know, feeling in control of your life, exactly. right? Exactly. gives you that sense of control. You know, knowledge exactly. is power. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, 
I want to get go back a little bit and talk about um, when you worked for digital because um, you know we always want to talk about the uh, wonderful things that women are doing in business on the show and we've talked a lot about the product and what you've invented but I want to know too um, some of the things that you learned along the way for women who might be listening and are you know struggling with something that uh, something in their field and you had some interesting years with a company digital what did you learn while you were there when I worked at Digital back in the early 80s, it was the second largest computer company in the world. And I worked with some of the smartest minds at Digital. They really encouraged me to think out of the box. We were part of a research group that was developing a Windows system before there was Windows. And we were part of a group that was trying to create a system that allowed people to learn using computers. Because before then, computers were primarily used for HR purposes. They really weren't, computers were not on everyone's desk, they were not in every, in every business office, and our goal was to make it so that people would learn using computers. So I was with a group of psychologists, educators, and software engineers, and our goal was to make an, an interface that people would find easy to use, again, before there was such a thing. And as a result, I think I learned from that that Computer science is not just about creating a new program. It has to be something that incorporates many different disciplines. When I created this product, it required an understanding of how people who are not perhaps very computer savvy would interface with a computer in a way that they had to be up to this information very, very easily. I had to make a product that was, that was um, graphically pleasing or fun to wear. Mm -hmm. um, and I had to make it easy for people to understand something that may be a little complicated. How can this little barcode, it looks like just a barcode, mm -hmm. how can this actually be powerful and save your life? Trying to put all those disciplines together, which is what I learned at DEC, that computer science is just not creating new programs, it requires many other disciplines too. Did you ever face any type of um I don't want to say backlash, discrimination as a female working in that field. I can tell you I never did. I, I always felt um, treated incredibly well, respected. I never, I think if it was really, I think it, maybe mostly men go into it, but I don't think the men who are in computer science are necessarily unkind to women in computer science. I just think it's a field that maybe women don't find as interesting. I don't get that, obviously. But I now realize that, now that I'm in, when I, when I left the working world of, of computers and I went to, you know, when I was a mom for a while, I met so many women who found computers so com confusing and couldn't understand how I could have gone into such a field. And I found that amazing to me. I, I never felt, I never felt that there wasn't anything I couldn't do because I was one in computer science at all. The men I worked with were wonderful um, and they only encouraged me to, to, to do more and, and, and to, I continued to grow with them when I worked at DEC, I continued to grow within that company, um, moving up the chain of, as a you know, junior level software engineer to a senior level software engineer. There weren't any barriers for me. D would you say you had a mentor, someone in the field that, that really believed in you and your ability and kind of, you know, validated that you were in the right field, hmm. doing the right work? 
Well, my first teacher at, at Vassar, who inspired me to go into computer science, the first class I took with her, Dr. Lenore Cleveland, I'll never forget her. She was amazing, and she got me excited about computer science, and she mentored me in a lot of ways at, at Vassar. We didn't have a lot of computer science classes then. It wasn't actually a major at the, at the school. I had to create a computer science and math integrated um, major. And she, and, but there were classes that I wanted the school to have, which we didn't have, so I created independent studies in, in certain fields, and she supported that. So I wanted to learn something called compilers. I wanted to create a compiler. And she said, let's go create a compiler. Okay, so we created a compiler together. So that was really, she, she encouraged me to continue to learn on my own, which you need to do in some respects in computer science. You need to, the field's always changing, you have to delve into new areas. It requires a lot of self-study, I think. At DEC, I had several mentors there who just were really supportive of me. I'm still very much in touch with them. A lot of the people who worked, I worked with in Boston moved out to Silicon Valley when Silicon Valley started to really grow. Mm -hmm. Still very much in touch with a lot of them. Microsoft and Google and Apple. Yeah. They have, they, they're all spread out and I still visit them. Yeah. Because they were very supportive of me. Yeah, I think it's always important to have people surrounding you that, that kind of give you that, um, you know, that, that push that, yes, what you're doing is a good thing. Right. Surround yourself with smart people. That's right. Always That's right. smart people. Always smart people. Always That's why I'm sitting here with this woman. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. There is nothing more exciting than working with smart people. That's right. Oh, they, I believe it. They inspire you mm -hmm. to, to be do. the best that you can be. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, what, one of the things I just love so much about you is, again, getting back to you always, you saw a need and you took action. And I think it's such a great example. Um, we didn't get to talk about the, um, when your children were in school and you were, your son was struggling with getting his work done and you thought to yourself, you know, there really should be some type of a program or a calendar for teachers to post, you know, for the students to keep them on top of things. That was just another example of, you know, something that you saw a need for and you, you took charge. I want to mention that that program is that something that uh, schools are using right now no I actually when I started my ID square I decided to close that program it was called web gatherings I had quite a few charter schools mm -hmm. in Philadelphia yeah, using it and some private schools in the suburbs using it I think we helped thousands of students I spent years developing it and making it better and better and adding more and more features it helped my son didn't know it was for homework and I, and I and I knew that you know again it's another problem that I had to fix, and there wasn't a program out there that would make that was available on the web in 2000 and 2001. So I wrote a calendar, and one calendar turned into many calendars, and one school turned into many schools, and up. I continued to grow the program. And I know that it helped my son, and I heard from. A lot of other parents that help their children, too. That's Good terrific. Mom. That's terrific. We are out of time. I thank you so much for coming in and sharing thank your you story with me. us today. And, again, thank you to Holy Redeemer Hospital. And, uh, we again, we just heard the story of Irene Glickman, founder of My ID Square. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Dupree for joining me. And we will be back again next week on Women to Watch. Have a great week, everyone. Uh, uh,